Hello, we are Restoration Church Chicago and welcome to our podcast. You can connect with us through our website, restoration.life, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. Our mission is to glorify Jesus everywhere, and that includes right here, right now. Thanks for tuning in. Up until the fall, everything that Adam and Eve did was worshipful unto God. They dwelled in the Garden of Eden in the very presence of God. They delighted in him wholly and completely, and God was pleased with them. So yes, worship is a lifestyle in that it is more than just specific actions, but it is also is so much more than that. It is fully living out the will of God and having a right relationship with him, giving him honor and glory in everything. And of course, this includes reverence and admiration and adoration and service. After all, he is our maker and creator and sustainer and provider. And if we depend on someone for everything, for our very livelihood, how can we not respect and admire them? Notice I said that earlier, before the fall, up until the fall, everything that Adam and Eve did was worshipful unto God. But when they fell into the temptation of Satan, they were met with a choice for the first time, with an alternative to worship. That's what we call sin. Can I make a provocative statement this morning and say that the only alternative to worship is sin? We either worship or we sin. And I don't mean that, that, that if you're not here singing, and we see all of you from up here, that if you're not here singing and lifting up your hands and worshiping, you're sinning. That's not what I mean. I said earlier that we're created and wired to worship. So we cannot help but worship. However, the problem with sin is that it is misdirected or corrupted worship. When Adam and Eve listened to the tempter and ate the fruit, they placed their trust in someone other than God. When they desired the knowledge of good and evil, they desired something other than God's will for them. Suddenly their focus shifted away from God and towards their own selves. And when they ate that fruit, they chose to please themselves over pleasing God. In essence, they began to worship themselves and their own desires. Their worship became misdirected and corrupted. My theology professor, some of you are taking classes with him right now, like to call this navel gazing, right? The idea of like being fixated upon your own self with yourself and becoming inward focused rather than outward towards God, this glorious God. Adam and Eve suddenly realized when they sinned that that their eyes were open to their nakedness and they started to worry about their nakedness and, and they began to drown in shame and guilt. And that had consequences, right, in terms of their relationship with God from both on their end and, and on God's end. They were ashamed and they hid from him, but their sin also physically separated them from God's glory, from God's holy presence. Now, these beings that were created in the image of the very nature of God were now in contrast to his nature, and to a repulsive degree. They could no longer face God in all of his glory. Otherwise, they would die. But God is a merciful God. In every circumstance, no matter how harshly we think God is dealing with us in our suffering, in every circumstance, God is a merciful God. You see, God didn't 
God did not kick them out of the Garden of Eden as a punishment or curse for their sins. Romans 3, 28 says that the wage of sin is death. If God had dealt with them according to that, they would have died immediately, and that would have been the end of humankind. We wouldn't be here today. But in his mercy, God spared them, and instead he drove them out of the Garden of Eden, his holy dwelling place where they would not survive. And he devised a plan to bring them back into a right relationship with himself and make all things new through his son, Jesus. He was merciful enough to give us a second chance and once again reveal himself to us through Jesus and bring us back into his fold that we may once again stand before him face to face in all of his glory. Colossians 1, 25 to 27 says, Jesus is, he's the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that had been kept hidden for ages and generations, but it is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God had chosen to make known among the Gentiles, the glorious riches of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God's plan, which is now being fulfilled through Jesus, is to make all things new again. Again, just as it is, just as it was before the fall. And this is the story of the gospel. And this is our primary impetus for worship. Can we pray together real quick? Lord Jesus, we thank you for the gospel. We thank you that you have made a way for us to come back to you, to have a right relationship with you, to be in your presence and to worship you. We thank you that you teach us how to worship you. Thank you that your word speaks to us, gives us knowledge to you, a revelation of you. Would you do that this morning? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, it is important that we distinguish the nature of worship before and after the fall. Because I don't want to reduce our worship as this involuntary, unintentional state of being. Throughout Scripture, God communicates clearly how he is to be worshipped on this side of the fall. And we'll look into that in a second, but I just want to establish a baseline, a position from where we can even begin to face the right direction and worship him. First and foremost, by turning to him and accepting him as our creator, our Lord, and our savior. Then we must understand how our worship can be corrupted and misdirected to ensure that we can, to ensure that our worship is directed in the right direction towards him and that it is pleasing to him and it brings glory to him. Yes, I was going to get to that definition that I was telling you about. All right. It is very good, but also very long. So hold on to your seats and try not to fall asleep. Um, all right. So worship, this is by D.A. Carson. Um, it says, worship is the proper response of all moral sentient beings to God ascribing all honor and worth to their creator, God, precisely because he is worthy, and delightfully so. On this side of the fall, human worship of God properly responds to the redemptive provisions of God, provisions that God has graciously made. While all true worship is God-centered, Christian worship is no less Christ-centered. Empowered by the Spirit and in line with the stipulations of the New Covenant, it manifests itself in all our living and finding its impulse in the gospel, which restores our relationship with our Redeemer God and therefore also with our fellow image bearers, our co-worshippers. 
Such worship, therefore, manifests itself in both adoration and in action, both in the individual believer and in corporate worship, which is worship offered up in the context of the body of believers who strive to align all forms of their devout description of all worth to God with the panoply of new covenant mandates and examples that bring to fulfillment the glories of antecedent revelation and anticipate, anticipate the consummation, that last half. I don't even know what it's talking about. So I decided to come up with a shorter definition that will hopefully be helpful. And I think basically what this, what D.A. Carson is trying to say by all these words is worship is the proper response to God's revelation and his mercy. And everything that all of those descriptions are encapsulated in those words, proper and revelation. If you have been with us for a while, we, and even this morning you've heard it a couple times, greater revelation of God. Revelation of God is, is very important to us, and we talk about it a lot. But what do we mean by revelation? What do we mean by a greater revelation? Moreover, what do we mean by a proper response to this revelation? What is proper worship of God? Well, Paul answers this question in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. Let's read it together. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God. For this is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So going back, you know, because it says, therefore, I urge you, what is he talking about? Um, what, is, what, what did he say before this? From the beginning of Romans and the chapters leading up to this passage, Paul explains systematically what this revelation of God looks like and what it means for us. And he builds a, a theology of, of sin and salvation. And if you haven't read Romans in a while, you should go back to it because it is so good. Um, in the first few chapters of Romans, Paul shares about, he shares the good news of the gospel, which I started off with. He goes on to talk about God's revelation to humankind through creation, which we often call uh, natural revelation. Now, this revelation can bring us to a place of adoration as we see the beauty all around us. It can bring us to a place of acknowledging him as our creator, but it doesn't necessarily bring us, bring our hearts to a place of a right relationship with him. However, it does leave us without an excuse to acknowledge him. And exactly this is what people have done all along. Paul says that people still rejected God, and, and as a result, his wrath was revealed. He gave them over to a depraved mind, and they gave in to every form of wickedness, of sin, greed, and hate, and envy, and murder, and quarreling, and deception. And this is not an exhaustive list by any means, but... Paul says that we are no less than, we're no better than any of these people that Paul refers to. And we are just as bad and we had no excuse. We see in the Old Testament that God revealed his will and his loss to the Israelites. He made ways for them to approach him in worship through the, the temple and the tabernacle. He made provisions uh, for them to maintain a relationship with him by keeping the laws, atoning for their sins through sacrifices. But even the Jews, God's chosen people to whom God revealed his laws, were unfaithful to him. At some point, Paul says, 
their heart were far from God because it became about keeping the laws and doing things rather than having a right relationship with Him. You see, the law never had the power to make them right with God. But the, 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 Paul says its job was simply to bring them to a knowledge of God and to acknowledge that they need God and they need to be made right before Him. In Romans 3 through 5, Paul talks about God's faithfulness despite. Israel's unfaithfulness to him, right? Sin is pervasive and rampant and has perverted everyone's heart, even God's chosen people. Romans 1.28 says, Everyone is culpable to be punished by death as its wage, but Christ paid its price. He died on the cross for the ungodly so that we can be saved in him by his grace through faith. In Romans 6 and 7, Paul reminds us that sin's power is broken our faith in Jesus, when at one time we were completely and utterly unable to respond to God, we were bound to our sin, and we didn't have the ability to choose to worship Him, God made us a way. He made a way to free us in Christ from the bondage of sin and be able to worship Him. In Romans 8-11, through 11, Paul reminds us of God's immense love for us. Neither heights or death or nothing can separate us from God's great love those who have placed our hope and trust in God. We're no longer slaves to sin, but we are led by His Spirit into righteousness and given a new life in Christ Jesus. Now we belong to a kingdom of life. And Hugh spoke this about, about this a little bit, a kingdom of goodness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit, from Romans 5.17. And even though all these provisions were made initially for God's chosen people, the Israelites, we, who are called Gentiles, were grafted into this family, into the tree of life, where we too may receive and benefit from Christ's death and resurrection, so we may have new life in him. God's mercy ex extends to Jews and Gentiles alike, to all of us who place our hope in him. My friends, this is the revelation that we're talking about. This is the revelation that we need to have. This is the revelation that we're obsessed with here at Restoration Church. This is a truth that has changed our trajectory towards death and destruction to restoration and eternal life. The fact that the spirit has, our spirit has been united with Jesus is the revelation that enables us to properly worship him in spirit and in truth, as we're called to do in John 4, 23-24. This is what compels us to worship him, to offer our lives as a living sacrifice, to pursue his holiness and righteousness. This is what causes us to bow down and worship with complete humility and reverence and adoration. This is what gives us the right orientation, the right position, the right posture of worship. My friends, our worship is a response to this revelation. And this is what it means to grow, and grow in worship and grow in revelation of God. It is to be saturated by this truth, to have our reality defined by this truth to delight in it, and to dwell in it. I want to use the remainder of our time briefly talking over what our worship looks like practically, right? What does it mean to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice? Are we going to lie down on an altar and wait for God's holy fire to consume us? As I said earlier, on this side of the fall, our worship is not involuntary. It's not unintentional, actionless state of being. But it's also not only just the posture of our hearts. It is indeed reflected through our actions. 
In fact, we can see throughout Scripture that God not only demands our worship, but through different ages and different times, he instructed his people how they should worship him. In the New Testament, we see two words that are, current, are translated to the word worship in, the, in, in English. The first word is proskuneo. I hope I'm saying these right. Which is used 60 times, and this means to adore or to give reverence to. And this is probably how most of the time we, we understand more worship. And this is the same word that's used in John 4.24 when Jesus says to the Samaritan woman, those who worship must worship in spirit and truth. This is the worship that has to do with the posture and the condition of our hearts. We respond with adoration in light of God's mercy and therefore revere and adore him. The second word is latruantes. Sure, I'm butchering this one extra. Which appears as a noun or verb 26 times throughout the Bible. And this word is translated as service. This is a word which is used in Philippians 3.3. 3. We who serve God or worship God by his spirit, who boast in Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. And I'm not just talking about serving at church or joining a serving team, which you should do. And we value that here. It's not just acts of service, but this refers to total allegiance to him, devoting our lives to doing his will, to serve him and glorify him and to please him in everything that we do. It is the outworking of our reverence to him. We see in both these contexts, both these words, these forms of worship involve worshiping through his spirit. Both of these words are used in the context of spirit-led and spirit-controlled worship. Now, looking back in Romans, we know that worship through the, that we worship through the spirit because we're not actually able to worship. We're not able to initiate worship God on our own accord. It is through his spirit. God's spirit, the one that enables us to worship him, the Holy Spirit is always worshiping God. And it is God's spirit in us that prompts us to worship him and leads us in a proper worship of him. It means that if we're not worshiping through the spirit, that, worshiping, that we're worshiping someone else or something else. And that is why we place such a big emphasis here at Restoration on spirit-led worship. And the second part of of worship is worshiping in truth. Now, what does it mean to worship by truth? What does the Bible say about truth? It says Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the word of God. He is the truth revealed to us through scripture. And scripture is God's truth. Truth refers to the Christian doctrines as revealed in the word of God. So this means our worship must be in line with all truths of the scripture. It means our worship must be centered in Christ. We worship God in spirit and rejoice in Christ Jesus. This means our worship must be Trinitarian. We must acknowledge the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit who are all involved in our worship. We worship the Father through the Spirit by the inspiration of the Holy, by the prompting of the Holy Spirit, right? This means that we're not just trying to come here and experience and be overcome by certain feelings, but this means seeking his will and meditating on his word and living a lifestyle that is consistent with Scripture, what he calls us to. And this doesn't mean approaching Scripture as a list of do's and don'ts and to tell us how we should live our lives, but seeking God's heart and desire and living a life that responds to that. So some of the examples we see of worship in Scripture, I go through these quickly because I think you know this already. In Genesis, 
22.5, uh, this is the first uh, mention of worship in the Bible and Abraham's obedience on Mount Moriah when he was ready to sacrifice his son in obedience to God. It's complete surrender to God's will. Exodus 20, verse 1 to 6, um, especially verse, uh, the first commandment uh, where God calls us to worship him alone and not any other idols, exclusive devotion to him. Psalm 95, 6, we sang about this this morning. Come, let us and bow down and worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. This humility and reverence to God, acknowledging him as our creator. In John 4, 24, Jesus says, uh, emphasizes the importance of worship um, in spirit and in truth. And we talked about this a little bit earlier. And God's people have, throughout ages, have always worshipped him, not through, like I said, not just like by being, but by expressing. And it, how do we see worship expressed in the Bible? Um, a lot of that is shouts of joy and singing. We see that in Psalm, shouts of joy, singing, and thanksgiving. These are all expressions of worship. In Psalm 150, we see praise through music and instruments. Worship cannot be confined simply to our words. It transcends into melodies that honor God. The angels are singing in heaven. They're making music unto God. And we join with them when we sing and we worship. Romans, we hit on this earlier, presenting our bodies as living sacrifice, holy and pleasing. And in James, we see this play out in practical ways. True worship includes taking care of the vulnerable and marginalized people in our communities. It is about living our faith in practical ways. And finally, corporate worship is a big part of, of worshiping God. In Hebrews 10, 24, 25, we see encouraging one another and assembling together is a vital part of our spiritual growth. In Acts 2, we see the early church devoted themselves to fellowship, breaking of bread. In Ephesians, we see more of singing each and encouraging each other with psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and giving thanks for everything. And this strengthens our bond among ourselves and our love for Jesus. I want to conclude this morning. I want to bring this to a land by saying that there is no middle ground. We talked about it earlier. We can either worship and be in this place where we're tuned to God or we're in sin. God has shown us mercy and made every provision for us to be restored and renewed so we can once again stand in the glorious presence of the Father through the blood of Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Worship is the only proper response to the revelation of God. Although in our human flesh, we cannot fully see his glory, he reveals himself and his heart through his son, Jesus, and through his spirit. Christ is the assurance of our faith and salvation. He is our hope of glory. And because of him, one day we will stand before the Father face to face in all of his glory, and it will be nothing but wonderful. But even in the waiting, now we get to press into him. In, in times like this morning, when we are pressing into Jesus and where we're lifting it high, we get to press into him through Holy Spirit. When we worship him through the Spirit and in truth, we pull down heaven and we step into the reality, the reality that we are, our lives are hidden in his son, Jesus, who is seated at the right hand of the Father, and we get a peek of the throne room of the Most High and Holy God. Where the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy. The elders are bowing down their crowns 
They're laying down their crowns before him and bowing down before him. We get to encounter a taste of what is to come. This is our destiny because of what Christ has done. We will join with them and all who have gone before us in eternal worship and eternal delight in him. Not only that, my friends, our worship is also a powerful weapon against the power of sin. Last week, you talked about the dominion of darkness. When we worship, we're engaging, we're engaging in a warfare, and we're engaging offensively against this dominion of darkness. And we take ground for the kingdom of light, which shines in the darkest parts of our hearts and floods out the darkness of sin. So therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in response to the revelation of God, let us offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto God, for this is our true and proper worship. Let us not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Let us bow down before him. Let us sing to him, serve him, and give him all of the glory and honor. Do his name in everything that we do. Amen. Thanks again for listening. We hope you were encouraged. Don't forget to connect with us through our website, restoration.life, as well as on Facebook and Instagram. 